welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Dellingpot. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but I really am excited. It's none other than John Waters. The John, I mean, I was going to talk about your interesting past, but isn't it a weird thing that the world has changed so much that our old lives don't really matter very much anymore? It's like it's it's like during the war, you could have been um, before the Germans invaded France. You could have been a, a really good blacksmith or you could have been a great novelist even. But everything would have been wiped out and replaced by this new normal. That, that, that's right. You know, although, you know, I have to warn you, James, you know, apparently you're not allowed to make any references to Germany when you're talking about anything to do with or the war or any of that stuff. It's, that's verboten. Are sorry, you talking about that? that? That start that the um the Mandalorian actress who got yes I heard banned. that she was she was cancelled for for making a, an egregious and offensive comparison uh, to Nazi Germany this got us rot I don't know uh, but yeah your point is actually really one that struck me recently when I was thinking about you know being a writer yeah that actually it doesn't really matter what you wrote before it's all nonsense now in a certain sense because it's about a world that no longer exists and can't really have existed. You know, people won't be able to believe. I mean, people are already saying, you know, by way of advice, I hear them now, people online or whatever, advising people about how to handle this moment, that when you're talking to your children, always assure them that before COVID, there was a life. There was a life, a human existence that they can't dream of now. And, and which is kind of really sad and really terrifying at the same time. And I, 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 but it's actually really true. I was thinking about it in the context of the novel because I always wanted to be a novelist, even though I was never able to really get a book together that I was happy with. And I was very kind of, I suppose, complexed about that. Now I'm kind of relieved because those books would be out there haunting me. They'd just be another thing to haunt me about the irrelevance of the first, you know, in my case, 65 years of my life. I know. I mean, you you had a, a, a kind of a better version of the life that I had before. I mean, we were both rock rock journalists. Um, I was sort of more part time than you, but you had an amazing career um, in the glory days of rock journalism, didn't you? I mean, you're you're just the right age for it. I I I, I did. I did actually in Ireland. I mean, I'm Irish and I live in in Ireland. Lived in Ireland all my life, and I had really. A kind of a, a re I was really lucky because I hadn't gone to college or anything like that. And I kind of, having started off doing various kinds of jobs in the beginning, like clerical work and so on, after I left school, I got very disillusioned with that. And But then I hit the rocks and I couldn't, I, I had no work at all. And and I just got, I had always wanted to be a journalist and I got really lucky. I got it, I, I just kept, you know, pummeling hot press, which had just started with articles. And eventually they used one, then they wouldn't use 13. And then they, I would use another one. And then like 27 would pass and they wouldn't use another. And then they'd use another one. And finally they said, do you want a job? And, and I mean, I was down the west of Ireland driving a mail car, which is kind of like the, some kind of equivalent in Irish uh, 1980s terms of the Western stagecoach, you know, because you carry mails, post and newspapers and passengers and day old chicks and all that stuff. So I was working uh, at the weekends, going to gigs and, and writing about bands, interviewing bands. I had some really bizarre experiences. I will tell you one, actually, one time after I was 
maybe a year doing it, the editor, Niall Stokes, rang me up one day and he said, how would you like to go to Paris and interview Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits? I said, mm, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> he said, so he said, oh, great, okay, I'll fix it up. So I was driving around Roscommon, you know, for, for the next 24 hours, absolutely ecstatic with this. Couldn't believe this fairy tale existence had really exploded. And then he rang me the next day again and says, yeah, everything's, on, everything's in, in, in under control. I just need one thing. I just need to get your passport details. And <laughs> you hadn't got one? I hadn't got one. Never thought of it. Never dreamt of having a passport where I came from. Never entered the picture absolutely whatsoever. So my consolation prize then was the following, a few months later for Christmas, I got to go to Birmingham to interview Rory Gallagher, which kind of made up for it, really. Yes, I... I... I had my worst, my worst hangover ever was in Paris when I had to go and interview a band that I'm very, very fond of called, do you ever come across Tinder Sticks? Yeah, I heard of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but, but I, I went, you never go drinking with a rock band and, and never try and oh, smoke, no. smoke dope with a rock band. They can always smoke and drink you under the table. It's hideous. To That's what they do. That's, that's their job. That's <laughs> their job, isn't it? But this world... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when I spent the, the time I got sent out to L.A. to interview Page and Plant on their, um, you know, their, their comeback tour where they did that Page Plant thing with um, with Paul Thompson from The Cure doing second lead on on their guitar. So you could recreate the, the sound of the album for the first time, all that stuff. Yeah. And I, I yeah. spent five days at the Sunset Marquee sitting by the pool waiting for Page and Plant to deign to interview, you know, find time in their schedule. Anyway, I, I won't, I, I'm sure you've got better experiences than this, but I, I'm only mentioning it to try and capture what our world was like, what we've lost. Because I can't right. see us flying out. I mean, A, newspapers, they've given up the ghost. And we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment. You wrote a very, very good article about this. I loved it. Newspapers haven't got the budgets. They're not serious anymore. That you, you can't do decent long-form journalism for them. They certainly wouldn't send you out to LA to interview Page and Plant. It's just that it just wouldn't be a, no. a, a thing. So those days are, are gone. And it's, it's so sad because, I mean, I haven't changed that much since, since, since those days. You know, it, it, it was definitely me. And the world has changed. Well well, we, 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 we really are, you know, I mean, we're in the business of words, James, but I'm struggling to find words to kind of build pictures of what's going on, what's actually happening and what it means. You know, occasionally you get flashes. Like I was like over the weekend, myself and my wife went west down to Sligo and uh, you know, totally illicitly, you know, I mean, we yes. just went and, and there were no checkpoints or anything. So. But I was actually on the way back, I kind of said to her, God, isn't it wonderful that we can actually drive on the road and actually stop at a garage and get a cup of tea and take it out and, and drink it in the car? Isn't that what an amazing thing after like 10 months of not being able to do that? Like, and you know, it's and I mean it, but you hear yourself saying you think, oh, my, we, we, we can't grasp this. We cannot grasp what this means. Yeah. We cannot look, I mean, if we look at our so-called leaders and look, you look at somebody like Matt Hancock or I look at someone like Leo Varadkar, they seem to me to be alien beings. They actually, I'm beginning to kind of believe the idea that, you know, they're actually lizards underneath this kind of mask, that they're going to rip it off any moment. 
and, and reveal themselves as these monsters from space. They're definitely lizards or pod creatures um, from Invasion of the yeah. Body Snatchers. Definitely. Definitely. I, I mean, mean I, saw, I saw Hancock the other day announcing 10-year prison sentences for people who tell lies. About whether they've been on holiday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what do you say about that? How can you begin to enter into that as a serious idea, having read your Orwell and your Huxley all those years ago and, and with great condescension thought, well, yeah, yeah, Orwell, yeah, he was a very imaginative bloke. You know, you know, how did he manage to work that out? Well, he should have just hung around for a few more years and he wouldn't have to bother writing that book. It's true, but what you say about the condescension, that we all felt that that history had pretty much ended, that that mm. that that we were so past the age of totalitarianism. You know, we'd we'd had communism, that we'd had the, the, the Bolshevik revolution, and we'd had the rise of Hitler rammed down our throats at school. Everyone knew the moral fables of history. Everyone knew it could never happen again because six million Jews, because all these reasons. We were just living in this, yeah. what now we realize is a fool, was a fool's paradise. Totally, totally a fool's paradise. Uh, but it's, it's quite extraordinary to think about how do we kind of sort out that thing, you know, because we assumed that we looked at everybody and so far we thought about these things and we said, well, they've read their all well too. Yeah. They know all this stuff. Yeah. It's kind of, a, if I can use this, it's kind of like an inoculation against the possibility of anything like this ever happening in reality. Yes. You thought more yeah. of this, but it wasn't. It's happening right in front of our eyes and people that we thought we knew are coming out with lines that are straight out of 1984 and they don't know that they are lines from 84, 1984. It's staggering. Yes, and, and it's particularly the educated classes. People, I had imagined that you went to university. I mean, you didn't go to university, okay, but I, I thought the purpose of university was to broaden your mind, to expose you to, to new ideas and teach you how to think critically, how to sift the good from the bad, how mm -hmm. to analyze stuff and, and recognize truth from from falsehood and this stuff about um i believe in free speech but dot 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 that was that was never some of a phrase no. people use free speech was completely taken as a given you didn't need to yeah. defend it this was only back in the no, I, in the 80s and you didn't at best tolerate it like now at the very best you get is people say well i i I, I, you know, you have the right to say something, even though it's nonsense type of thing is implicit in what they're saying. You know, even though you're completely wrong and actually dangerously psychotic, I defend to the death your right to say that stupid thing you've just said, right? Yeah, That's exactly. the kind of best you're going to get now, yeah. you know? But it's amazing too, you know, like I, I, I was just thinking, you know, I mean, rock and roll, to go back to that subject briefly, I mean, rock and roll, if, if there ever was an entity on the face of the planet that you would have expected to rise up yes. against this, it would be rock and roll. Like I remember back in 1984, the nine, the real actual January 1984, I actually wrote an article for Hot Press. They had this thing in the, on the page three, which is kind of called the Mad Hatter's Box. And it was just like about 20 silly questions you asked people. And there was a guest every week, you know, and I decided I would make one up and it would be in the name of Winston Smith. So I asked Winston Smith all of these questions. I can't remember now, and I, can't, I haven't got it anymore, but it, that was the concept, right? And I remember like, like, we were really celebrating this moment. 
with a sense of triumphalism that this thing that he, how Orwell had imagined, which had been a danger, no longer was. And yet, like Hot Press, if you were to look at his pages now, is actually accepting completely the whole COVID tyranny, is completely accepting the whole kind of narrative. The only rock and rollers that have, uh, you know, uh, risen up, Van Morrison, Eric Clapton, Noel Gallagher has spoken a couple of things, and Ian Brown has spoken. Out Ian of, Brown has been very vigorous. Yeah. He has, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And Van der Man has been as well, you know. Uh, but otherwise, nothing. Not a, not a, it's just crickets. And, and uh, I, I just can't get my head around that. And, and insofar as I, I mean, I'm still in touch with people in the artistic and, uh, world or have any kind of communication from them or with them, they're all bought in. They're all completely bought into all this. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 is, it is shocking. Where I, I, I would imagine that Morrissey must, have been, must be on our side, mustn't he? I think he's, he may have said a few words. Uh, yeah, I wrote a piece about him for The Spectator saying that he was kind of like the man of COVID in a way, because, or the man of the lockdown, because he actually had, had been into social distancing long before anybody else ever thought about it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. just didn't like other people, you know? And he admitted it freely. You know, he actually once said, you know, that his ambition, like to, to, he couldn't wait to get on. When he was on Desert Island Dist, he just couldn't wait to get onto that island to get away from other people, you know? But that was Morrissey's kind of like thing, you know, he was just... That was his fun, the fun part of him. Uh, but I, yeah, I think so. I think he, he, you know, his mum died in the middle of the whole thing. So I think that probably uh, was a distraction from it. But yeah, you would expect him to have a, a position on it normally. I don't know. I, I, I can't really, you know, work this out. Uh, and it's got to do, but I, I can in this sense. It's clearly got to do with the power of propaganda. I wrote an article recently about it. I, I'm on Substack uh, now since last year. And uh, it's a kind of a newsletter platform, and I do lots of lot, but they're not letters; they're actually they're half books, you know, like long articles. Yeah, yeah. But I, the, the the propaganda thing, like it's just that you know, I was talking about the 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 power of propaganda in in like which is a science as a word that was kind of evolved in the thirties, forties, fifties through uh, Edward Bernays, and then into kind of advertising and depth merchandising and all that kind of stuff, and. But that time, there was all they had was radio, cinema, newspapers, and the odd advertising hoarding, and that was deemed to be a deeply like dangerous weapon in the hands of the wrong people. Yeah. Now, just think of the comparison. Like we live in an age where we're actually literally living in bubbles full of noise and 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 information and you know, opinion, and easy, we're infinitely more suggestible than we were then. And the result is that that's the only way I can actually understand. The people that I meet in the street who are clearly terrified out of their wits yeah. that they're going to get something and die within an hour, you know, something like that. Yeah. And uh, it's and 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 what you're saying, our 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 profession, James, really is responsible for this. I have to say, it wouldn't yeah. be possible without without journalism having been corrupted yeah. by this. And I, I see this very clearly now in Ireland, you know, where where newspapers just see that they have put themselves at the disposal of governments and health czars to sell the message above all else. There's no questioning, there's no investigation, there's no analysis. It's just, you know, carry the message, you know, uh, like journalists coming out with absolute, uh, uh, you know, 
banal one-liners. Like today, I heard some well-known journalists here saying that to compare uh, uh, COVID to the flu is like comparing uh, uh, a lion to a, a pussy cat or something like that, you know, oh. which is complete nonsense. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, but that's the kind of thing that people remember and it operates on that kind of prepared, uh, you know, refined kind of sensibility that is, is, is generated by this propaganda. And this, I would say, mass hypnosis, mass entrancement, really. Yeah, I, I, I read your article um, on the decline of, of, the, of the media and I, it just really hit home for me. Um, so few... So very few of my contemporaries, even the, the, the really bright, outspoken, free-thinking ones, so few of them have got what's going on. So few of them acknowledge what's going on. And I find it unforgivable that, that when fascism comes to take, I mean, it is a form of fascism. You know, we can quibble over the terms. You can call it technocracy or whatever you want to, but it is essentially totalitarian what is happening to our countries and and part of the part of the terrifying nature of it is that it's everywhere it's across yeah. the west all over the west there are there are very few pockets and those those pockets that are holding out like sweden are under tremendous pressure to to shift in line with the general author totalitarian orthodoxy and yet so few journalists are calling this out no just just talk me through your, your theory on, on because just one more thing, the media in, in Britain, for example, we always used to pride ourselves on just how robust and fearless our press was in holding the government to account. And this was one of, one of our bulwarks, one of the things that kept us free, that our press, you know, John Wilkes had fought for this stuff in the um, 18th century. Uh, fought for the right to report on on parliamentary proceedings, and we were never going to give those powers back to the to the authorities. But lo, looks what! So tell me what's happened. Well, it's a really interesting one because uh, it seems to me that at some level, the whole COVID thing was somehow imbued or primed with a kind of an ideological kind of colorant or something. You know that it actually suggested itself immediately for some reason that is kind of quite mysterious as kind of left wing, you know, that which journalism has been instinctively mostly for the last, you know, 40, 50 years, the broad generality of it. And that was a good thing at one point back in the, in the seventies, perhaps you would say, well, there was an, or, you know, in certainly in Ireland, it was, you know, because you were against the establishment, which was deeply conservative. And so it was a good thing to be left wing. And I was in, in, in rock and roll journalism, of course, that's what we were. But there was something about COVID that, I mean, I, one of the things that struck me early on was that how, how cleanly the world seemed to break down in terms of people who were anti-lockdown, which was basically conservative right wing, loosely, I don't like these terms much, but they're generally useful for this. And on the other, that, that, that there was kind of like a, a sense of, you know, the state is right, we must do what we're told, you're killing people if you don't, and so on. Now, it struck me that if I went back 30 years when I was in the Irish Times and went going to weekly conferences, feature conferences, news conferences, I couldn't in a million years imagine that a pandemic or a virus would be received in this way. 
you know, there would be probably, probably a breakdown of people who thought it was going too far or not far enough or whatever. But it wouldn't be cleanly that the lefties would have one position and the kind of the conservatives at the other. But COVID seemed to have this from the beginning. And I think perhaps it had a lot to do with Trump, for example, because it seems to me now, really looking back, that a way of seeing it usefully in terms of at least the timing of it is that it was an attempt or a you know, as we know, we now see a successful attempt to take out Trump, that it was designed in that way to make him look bad. You know, however you kind of trace the origins of it, whether it was the Chinese, whether it was Fauci leaking the stuff or moving, shifting the stuff to, to Wuhan in the first place, bringing it back and letting it loose then to basically undermine Trump's presidency in his last year in the first term. And I do think there's a lot of those kinds of things. I mean, because it, it is quite extraordinary that when you actually talk to people, you can almost guess their entire politics, just as you can if you, if you talk about LGBT or you talk about, you can talk about, you can ask about COVID and you know what their entire, the print, you get the full printout of their ideology yeah, you do. from that. And, and so I, I think that journalism kind of in that, in that context was easily swayed. The other thing, of course, is that financially, the newspapers themselves and corporately were on their last legs. A lot of them are on their last legs. And something like this, an economic with a with a built-in economic crisis, would have finished them off. So it seems that they were presented with a you know a Hobson's choice, or a, let's be kind to them, and say, well, you can you can go against us and suffer the consequences of the of the inevitable, or you can play it our way and we'll see you're okay. And I think that's kind of what happened. Yeah. And journalists were told, you take it or leave it. You know, uh, there isn't there isn't any room for dissent here. Uh, you either leave or you just do what you're told. And it's very interesting, you know, uh, James, I've, I've noticed you, the names wouldn't mean anything to you, but you know there's a certain kind of journalist in, particularly in the broadsheets, well, it's exclusively in the broadsheets, you know, the Guardian, the Observer, you know, the, the Independent, who particularly at the weekend, Saturdays or Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, they do what we used to call a think piece, you know? Yeah, yeah. And this would be like reflecting in the deep, you know, about the kind of philosophical meanings and, and, and of, of different events. And no matter what it would be, it could be like a football match or it could be like the weather or something like that, but it would, there would be deep philosophical reflections, right? There's been almost none of that in relation to COVID, to the best of my knowledge, in the, in the broadsheets. I don't look at them you know, religiously, but I, I, I would hear if somebody, and I'm thinking of particular guys, had come up with some kind of great theory of COVID. But the problem with that is, you see, if you go up with a great theory of COVID, the only thing to do is actually expose the scam. That's all you can do. Yeah. You can't really go under it in any other way. So they're not going there. They're avoiding the subject, it seems to me. Can you, I mean, I find it, and I'm sure you feel the same, that it is the bizarrest situation imaginable where there is a story out there where you've got it's you've got the facts you understand what's really going on and the public narrative is completely the opposite of what is actually true and you're a journalist and your job is to reveal the truth and yet you can't touch it the the biggest story of our lifetime and you can't touch it how crazy is yeah, that yeah that's right that's right. I mean, you see these press conferences uh, with the health czars and the politicians, yeah. and you know from the general semiotics of it that there's an audience there of journalists, right? Yeah. 
but they never ask any questions other than kind of easy softball things that are kind of used for the TV news. Yeah. But like it's screaming out for somebody to jump up and say, what the hell are you talking about? You know, this, the PCR test is a complete fraud. You know it, I know it, everybody knows it. And nobody ever says this. And so the next day they're telling us about all the cases they have and they're going to go up and they're going to come down and they're going, but you say, but it doesn't matter what they do because they complete, it's a complete fraud. Nobody says this. It's quite extraordinary. I, I mean, and, and, and I mean, we have some just bizarre things happening now. Like, I mean, there was apparently a TV program the other night where a guy who's kind of like one of those health stars was on demonstrating something, which I don't know if he's invented. Somebody's invented anyway. And it's a kind of a device which will allow people to go to gigs, right? In, oh, yes. Like, maybe even to go to have you seen this? Is it a distance monitor? Is it, what, what does it do? Tell me. No, 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 no. It's a big bubble. It's a big bubble of plastic, right? Yeah. And you just get into it. And it, there's room for your legs so you can walk, I think, underneath, you know. But it, it, it completely surrounds you so that you just kind of, I suppose it, there are some kind of uh, um, sensors on it that if you bump into another bubble, it'll go beep, 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 and like your car, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And these guys seriously were demonstrating this on this, this TV show. People should send me clips of it. I'm afraid to turn on the sound because I'm sure they're saying completely crazy things. You know, and I, I mean, I, we're close enough to the edge as it is without inviting total, you know, disintegration uh, by listening to that madness. But this is, you see, I think this is related to something that we weren't really monitoring. I, I mean, I've been talking about it for some years in different contexts. I don't know if you felt this, James, but... That, that the world was going crazy anyway. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like that, 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 that the adults had left the room. The adults had left the building, actually. You actually think about it. When we were kids, when I was a kid, the, the, the world was full of adults and they were paying the ass, mm. right? They were mm. always telling you what to do and giving out to you. And, you know, they've all gone. You don't see them now anymore. You, you, you just aren't. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay, in the COVID episode, there have been these kind of busy bodies, but that's coming up and telling you where your mask is and that. But that's a different thing. They're, like Robert Bly, 25 years ago, wrote a book called The Sibling Society, where he kind of predicted this, that the world would end up with generations of half adults and that there would be no real adults and that we would all be siblings squabbling with one another, you know, and that's what social media is essentially. And, and I think that's kind of something that we haven't described it. See, one of the problems is, James, that we worked in the media. And apart from, I mean, you're lucky in a way because you work for The Spectator and, and you know, alternative ma magazine. We haven't had those in Ireland for a long, long time. That's where I started out with Hot Press in Dublin, McGill, you know, which were really great magazines back in the 70s and 80s. But they stopped. They just ran out of steam because there wasn't a market big enough for them. Uh, but you still have the spectator there. So you at least there's an opportunity to get in some kind of, you know, lateral position on all this now yeah. and again. But no, here there isn't. No, I, 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 look, I I'm, I'm really lucky in that the, the, the bulk of my income comes from my Breitbart salary. If, if, if it wasn't for the alternative media, I would be in the mm. same position of those of my contemporaries who've got, you know, they depend on on the Telegraph and the Mail for their or whatever, on the mainstream media for their incomes. And it's easy for me to say, you complete sellout tossers, you know, where is your self-respect? But, there's a, you know, if that is your living, and there comes a point in journalism, as you know, where you can't, you can't suddenly 
move into a new, you can't suddenly become a racing driver or a, 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 a no, lawyer. You <laughs> you're, you're no, no, it's a very limited uh, trade, a very limited craft that, you know, what do you do with it afterwards? I mean, this is the thing. Uh, like, I, I do actually look at some of these guys and actually wonder, you know, because you know that like, there was always an element of that in journalism where you'd say to somebody, you know, you're really, you're having this on with all that stuff, you know, you know, and, and he'd say, well, yeah, you know yourself, you know, uh, you, you got to play the game, you know, because that's what the editor wants or that's what the chairman wants or whatever, you know. But there's none of that this time. At the you got to say, they're either totally convinced of it or they're really good at pretending they're totally convinced mm. by the whole thing. They're that's not, there's no change. They're not admitting anything. Because I think they understand the implications of it, maybe, that, that if you were to admit that you were, you know, uh, frauding it up, I mean, that, that this, that would be absolutely deadly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I, I think that uh, we're in a situation where I think journalism is over now, really. I mean, yeah. uh, as I say, I started up with Substack. I mean, I think there's some chance that the, the alternative will, that the, the margins will start to come in after this, that the internet, uh, the Breitbart's, you know, the spectators and all these kind of slightly marginal uh, platforms will become much more important because I do think that one of the things, if we ever get out of this, one of the, 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 the consequences will be a total loss of faith in the media, mainstream media. I, they have behaved I totally agree with you. I do not read the mainstream media now. I mean, I, my wife has the Telegraph out of habit. You know, she's, she's of a certain generation and she likes a newspaper to read at breakfast. Whereas I saw, I saw the decline over a period of, of, of years and I, and I would find myself increasingly angry about this or that article because it was just mm. against everything that the Telegraph readership believed in. I mean, that's the thing. It's not just the traditional leftist media which has gone this direction. It's the conservative media, again, has, has also betrayed us. I mean, that's where I would dispute this. It's a left-right thing. I mean, they, they've all gone in this... They've all followed the the COVID blob direction, haven't they? They've all they've all gone the same. There's, there's no... Well, there's they, no yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I do agree, but I, I would say that even though, you know, newspapers are maybe conservative uh, in, in terms of their corporate kind of uh, image or whatever, very often you still find that most of the journalists are left-leaning. They're liberal, at least totally. in that sense. You know, they're not very rare to meet really conservative journalists in, in Britain or Ireland now. I mean, you do meet them still in America quite a lot, actually. There's some really good ones. Yeah. Uh, but it's a rare thing. And, and uh, uh, so that's what I meant by that. Uh, America is very different, actually, on the whole thing. COVID is really freaky because if you actually think right from Trump down, there seems to be this kind of inability to see that, that the whole thing is a scam. And I'm talking about people like, say, someone like Victor Davis Hansen, who is brilliant, this brilliant critic, critic of American society, American history, totally. historian, classical scholar, and so on. He's written a great book about Trump, uh, uh, The Case for Trump. And he kind of compares Trump to both Greek kind of legends and also to movie stars, movie parts, you know, like Shane and these guys and the, 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 the Magnificent Seven and these. And it's really brilliant stuff. But when he starts to talk about COVID, he goes into like pure literalism, talks about the virus, 
the gravity of it. Like there's no questions at all that it might actually be fake. It doesn't seem to occur to him. And I find this amazing. And he's not alone in that in America for some reason. I think it may be a, a lot to do with this, the, the, the story of New York and what happened there, which is still to be really explored in its depth. Uh, the, what are the particular reasons that caused that massive number of deaths in New York in April last year? Uh, nobody's really got to the bottom of it, but it isn't actually the general American experience. Generally, the, 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 the virus did not affect most of America very substantially. Uh, but Trump, it seemed that he was kind of like almost, I, uh, my theory for a long time was, was that he was kind of a prisoner of Fauci and couldn't, didn't yes. dare to open his mouth. Uh, but he's had an opportunity now that he's free of it all to say, by the way, it was all a con. Uh, but he hasn't done it. Well, I think my theory on that is that because, you know, there was that famous there was that famous moment where Tucker Carlson went, drove to Mar-a-Lago to seek an audience with Trump to explain to him that, no, this COVID thing was wasn't something he could sort of brush under the carpet Bolsonaro style. Although, of course, actually, that's exactly what he should have done. You look at yes, you look at Christy Noam in South Dakota. South Dakota, fantastic record. Just kept businesses open. No masks. No, none of this nonsense. Its its curves were pretty much the same as any as any place that instituted a lockdown. It was because that's we, you and I know this. Probably everyone watching yeah. knows this. This is what this is this is how pandemics if you, if you if you even call it a pandemic which it which it which it isn't or it, it wasn't until the who redefined pandemic um th this is this is the the trajectory of viral respiratory illnesses that they they have a steep curve at the beginning and then they go down and then they become endemic and you might get a kind of second yeah. second bump but it's not you know it's it's, it's normal um but yeah so trump should have done that and i think Part of the, the reason he's conflicted is that he's now invested in, I launched the vaccine program and this vaccine, they say I couldn't, I, it couldn't be done, but I rushed it out and here's the vaccine. Right. Isn't it great? So he's caught up with that. And of course, yes, lots think, of. Yeah. Yeah, I think he, he adopted this tactic early on that the, 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 the uh, models were all saying that it was, there would be 2 million people would die in America. And if he managed to kind of keep it under that, he, that would be a victory for him. Mm. He was more or less accepting their narrative. And he, I think he possibly thought it's too dangerous to, to do that, to just simply say, no, it's not, it's, I'm, we're just going to keep going. Uh, but it's, it's a very strange thing, you know, that, that, that it did actually, the, the virus did actually take Trump out. They wouldn't have been able to do it. There's no question. He, he lost. He lost this election because of the virus, because it gave them the excuse to for the postal ballot ballots. I mean, OK, so we know that they also rigged it via the Dominion machines as well. But I think I, I'd go even further than that, that the only reason the coronavirus pandemic scare happened was because a concerted globalist attempt to destroy Donald Trump. I think the CCP. Yes. In, in collaboration with, with the World Health Organization, with compromised people like Fauci, Bill Gates, big tech. It was, all, it was all ultimately to destroy Trump, who was the enemy of the globalist new world order. 
That's right. And and it was an, a remarkable thing that I remember doing. I, I, I don't remember the precise details of it now, but I remember last April, end of April, doing a study of all of all the American states where there were high fatality rates. And they were all Democrat states, run states at that point. Yeah. So, you know, even though Trump was being blamed for it at the federal level, it, the, the actual responsibility fell genuinely to Democrat governors who were in place and who seemed to be either, I don't know, who knows? I mean, there were all kinds, there was all kinds of fraudulence all over the world, including in Ireland. You know, the fixing of figures, you know, the cooking of fatality rates, you know, the the mixing up of all dying of and dying with, all that stuff. There was, uh, you know, uh, really a lot of falsification all over the place. And that, you see, again, that goes back to journalism because that's the first thing journalism will be in on immediately taking it apart. There was none yeah, of that happening. Exactly. It's a gift, isn't it? I mean, it, it, there is, I felt a bit like this way with the global warming thing. There is so much low hanging fruit for any journalist prepared to do the barest minimum of research outside the crap you get fed by Greenpeace or, or whoever. You know, it doesn't take much digging to see that everything they tell you is a lie or an exaggeration, that the narrative is, is false. And it's the same with, with coronavirus. It ought to be a gift to any, any, well, any journalist who had any self-respect would be saying the things that we're saying. And they would also be saying, I mean, if they, had, if they wanted to sleep at night and live with themselves um, and, and have a decent afterlife, they would be saying, okay, I'm just gonna have to accept that I may have to lose my job. I may have to write for Substack instead because I cannot, my integrity will not allow me to, to propagandize on behalf of this lying globalist elite. It's wrong. It's not my job. I'm a journalist. You would have thought so. And, and I mean, this is the astonishing thing that, that I really cannot get my head around, that journalists who have taken great pride in their, in their craft and in their position uh, over the years can just simply do something that is actually not just giving in to some particular agenda in the, in the newsroom. It's actually flipping their entire model. It's moving from trying to tell the truth to simply blatantly telling lies for money. And, and, and that's it. Like, so they're not any longer journalists. I say, well, I'm, this is not something that journalists like, but I, call, I say, this is not journalism. This is, uh, they're journalers. Uh, like and that's what it has become. Unfortunately, our profession. It's Corporacy, so sad, another it? one. I get it is. Uh, I get I get lots of lots of really lovely emails and and and, and things from people who say, "Yeah, you're the you're the last journalist left standing. You're a you're a total hero." And and and, and some some of the women even fancy me, which is great. <laughs> and uh, they want to have dinner with me and and, and stuff. Uh, and I'm thinking. Well, this is a piece of piss because all I'm going to do is tell the truth and just do, yeah. do my basic, really basic due diligence and just, uh, and, and yet you and I are about just about the only ones doing this shit, which is why I'm talking well, to you. Well, there's almost nobody, yeah. Yeah, there's almost nobody. Uh, there's a couple of us here in Ireland, you know, but we're, we're not working for any newspapers or, you know, we're doing our own thing on our own. Jim O'Darty was doing this legal case with me. She's got her own website and she's pumping out all kinds of stuff all the time. So what's her name? And, and Tell me. Jim O'Darty. Jim O'Darty. We took a legal action against the, the lockdown here, which is still being held up in the courts, you know, because... Uh, 
uh, we we basically took a constitutional action saying this is completely unconstitutional. It's complete. You can't basically. Uh, I mean, if you can do this, James, it means that the constitution, which has existed in 1937, is nothing but a roll of toilet paper. That's what it and means. Because I think. They, they, are you about to discover that it is a roll of toilet paper? Because I'm thinking. Well, we've I, had similar cases in in the UK. Simon yeah. Dolan's brought a case. He tried tried to you know judicial yeah. review. No joy. That's right. That's the same. Yeah, we're, we've had a similar trajectory, except it's taking longer. We're now before the Court of Appeal. They've gone off. And of course, I don't want to tempt fate by agreeing with you and what you've just said. But you can take it that I'm not exactly jumping up and down with anticipation, you know, uh, because unfortunately, they, 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 the consensus, I mean, you get these kind of circular judgments now, which says, uh, the government was confronted by an unprecedented pandemic, therefore everything the government did was justified. But, but you say, well, no, but that's the question we're asking. That, you know, we're asking, how can this be justified? You know, and I said, no, because of the pandemic. No, but can we get that? Can we open that box as well? No, 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 no. the pandemic is a fact. How is it a fact? Because the government say so. Yeah, it's but this is this again is is common to a lot of a lot of Western democracies which thought that they had a system. You know, you've got constitution, the US has got a constitution, we've got a kind of living constitution. And part of that those various constitutions was the notion that the law would operate without fear or favor and everyone was equal before the law, and that the lawyers mm. would kind of their job was to ensure justice. But you had the case where the Supreme Court of the USA wouldn't even look at the cases brought by the states about electoral fraud, saying, with a sort of bullshit excuse, they've got no standing, something like that. They just didn't want to know, not least because Justice Roberts is, is part of the swamp and doesn't want to, doesn't want to. I mean, I find that shocking. I really do. I, I, I genuinely oh, thought the US Supreme Court to, the, it's a big deal becoming a Supreme Court justice and that you take the law very seriously. You're not a political a activist. Turns out they're political, political activists. And the same in the UK. I mean, we've got Lord Sumption. Lord Sumption is the only voice speaking out. Yeah. Why aren't all the law, law lords speaking out? Why, what's happened? And I'm well, to say in Ireland. We've had no Lord Sumption. I mean, you know, we really are in, in, in very deeply envious that if at least you've had George uh, Lord Sumption. Uh, we've had nobody, and like no retired politician, no retired judge, no lawyer. It's impossible for people who have tried to take actions to get lawyers. You know, they're willing to take their money and give them bad advice, uh, with basically that you have no hope. You have no hope of winning, but. So we took our case, and we are actually lay litigants in our own case because you, you couldn't get lawyers anyway. Uh, this is the most remarkable thing, you know. And as regards America, you're dead right about the, the, the Supreme Court. I mean, Trump appointed, this is into a huge fanfare, yes, Trump yes. appointed three allegedly conservative judge, judges to the Supreme Court. They all sat on their hands throughout that. And the only two who supported them were people who owed them nothing at all, Alito and the other guy. Uh, well, I forget the name now, but uh, you know, like three guys, like what was the point? I mean, I, I say to people like, you know, t Trump would have been better off just sticking a pen in a list of lawyers and nominating whatever ones he got, because they would have, at least one or two of them might have actually felt, well, I owe him something, you know, yeah. I, I'm going to give him the nod, you know, but no, nothing, nothing. No. Uh, it's extraordinary. 
uh, and you know, it's, it's amazing. Like, I mean, when you saw what, what uh, Mike Pence did, I mean, all Pence had to do was refer the whole thing back to the states. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the, 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 the electors back to the states because a lot of them wanted it. Pennsylvania wanted them back to review the whole thing. No, can't do it. Uh, not my job. Uh, you know, it's, and it's, everybody, it's the old adult thing. It's the adult thing again, you see, James. There are no adults. People, everybody's running scared and everybody's genuinely scared. And I think actually the whole cancel culture thing and the LGBT thing and all of that kind of BLM, that has created a terror around the world. And what you said earlier is so right, because ultimately it's going to come to that, that people are going to have to look in the mirror and say, okay, am I going to protect my little job or am I going to protect my civilization? Yeah. Because that's what, that's what it's down to. It is. It is. Which is why I've got absolutely zero respect for those who are not those those with the intelligent with the critical fa faculties and the literary skills and the communication skills to be able to analyze what is going on and, and broadcast to the world what's going on. Because one thing I've noticed in in politics, when when bad guys do things, when the kind of radical left undermines our, our, our system using devious propaganda methods that are familiar from, from, you know, from used by the Bolsheviks, used by the Nazis, etc. The first thing you have to do is to show their workings, expose their methods, show, show the world what's really going on, what they're saying. And you, you're halfway to winning the battle. And yet, Mm. My, my, so few of my contemporaries are even doing that. They're, they're not saying, for example, I mean, here's the thing. And I have an argument about this with my, with my friend, Toby Young, who's, who's, who's good, but he's a bit cucked. Um, so I looked at the ONS data of um, age standardized mortality from 2020 going back to 1942. And you look at the you look at the, the bars going down and they, they rise up. So 2020, which is the year when the world changed totally because of this uh, allegedly near unprecedented pandemic, you know, the, the pandemic like we've never seen before, not since the Spanish flu. And you look at the deaths and the deaths in 2020, total deaths are the same as they were in 2008 and every year before it, going back to 1942. 2020 was the 12th best year for, for survival um, in, in that period. And you're thinking about, well, all the years before that, from 2008 backwards, why did we not wear masks then? Why did we not shut down the economy? Why did we not have quarantine and social distancing? I don't remember any newspaper articles in 2008 saying this is we've got to deal with these with this virus before it kills us all. No. Life went on. And that's right. Journalists can't even do that basic basic thing to put to put what's going on in context. That's right. I mean you know it's an amazing thing but apparently right around the world now there has been no flu this winter. Mm. A, just covid. It's, you know, that's become the, 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 the respiratory disease of choice, it seems, for people. Uh, and I mean, that's, that's kind of like, you, you, you know, if you go back, the only stories that used to happen when there were in Ireland 
you know, lots and lots of people on trolleys in previous winters. There would be articles about that. But everybody knew that that was happening. Everybody knows that in January, February, uh, a lot of old people die. Disproportionate numbers of old people die because yeah. that's the, the beginning of the year, the end of the year. And, and they, they just, their bodies give out. And, and that's kind of accepted. And it's, but it's an amazing thing that culturally they've managed to, to do this thing, which involves a kind of an insinuation that nobody ever died before that nobody's ever been ill before. Because you hear people say to you things like, well, you know, I wouldn't like to get it. I wouldn't like to get it. I say, well, I wouldn't like to get it either. I don't want to get the flu anytime, yeah. you know. But I, I, I'm not going to ring up the Taoiseach or the Prime Minister and say, I'm sorry, you know, Boris, you know, you're going to have to close the country down because, like, I've got a terrible sore throat. You know, I mean, it's complete nonsense. The logic of it is absolutely absurd. The whole, the logic of the lockdown itself is absurd. People don't know. The idea for the lockdown came from Xi Jinping. That was his idea, right? It's never been tried before. Nobody ever thought of it before. People would have laughed at you before if you said it. And suddenly, Jinping says it. He tells the who, the who tell the governments, the governments sort of say, okay, yeah, that's all. Every, and because everybody's doing it, everybody does it. And then everybody acts like it's the most obvious thing in the world to do. Yeah. And then they try to tell you that it's actually working when actually you say, you know, you, see, you compare North Dakota and South Dakota, they have similar levels of deaths. One had a total lockdown, the other had no lockdown. You know, it's absolute nonsense. Uh, but see, there's a, Another factor as well in that, I mean, like that there was a spike in a lot of places around the world in April, very sharp and very mysterious looking spike if you see it drawn out. Yeah. And there's a brilliant scientist from Canada called uh, uh, Dennis or Denny Rancor, who's done an amazing analysis of this. And what he concluded was that these, most of these deaths occurred in care homes and they were the result of panic and stress. In, which was generated by mis media hysteria. And they didn't die of any virus whatsoever. And that uh, this was actually a built-in part of the plan to create statistical debts that they could use to terrify everybody. And I think there's a lot of some sense in that. I think it has the appearance, it has certainly the vers uh, verisimilitude of truth about it. Yes, uh, certainly. Um, the stuff you mentioned about the, the lockdowns, I'm amazed by how, how few people know this. Um, I think Michael Sanger, if you, if you come across him, I think he did a lot of, I think I've got his name right, mm. American lawyer uh, from Atlanta. He researched this and he, he started looking at um, Twitter activity. I mean, the Chinese have got this mass army of, of well, they're not even bots. They are actually living people who, who just work these Twitter accounts. And they say things like, um, why is the British government washing its hands while people are dying? And, and you get this mass, mass pressure on social media, which filters into the, the general discourse. But you're right. Lockdowns were never considered appropriate for, for, outbreaks before before 2020 it's a it's a chinese imposition so why can't journalists do this basic stuff why are they so incurious uncurious as, as, as to... it's not but i think it goes further than in, in curiosity because actually a lot of these journalists are militantly opposed to anybody who dares to question it 
Yeah. I mean, their longer energies are devoted to sneering at or, or, or demonizing those who question it. Yeah. And that's because they're bought in. You see, one of the things is, James, you know, that if you're drawn into a kind of a corrupt uh, conspiracy, uh, you get a stake in the whole thing because you don't want it to be found out then because you're going to be shamed. And so the fear of being shamed is causing them to huddle in and protect this edifice, this creaky ed edifice, even when now it's beginning to kind of uh, totter a little bit. Uh, like in Ireland, like we've just had announcement that our, our lockdown is now going to be extended until, until Easter, uh, whereas previously it was just supposed to be January. Uh, and this is going to continue. I mean, this is the thing I saw on a website there on the World Bank website. People can look this up. I presume it's still there. Was a section about what they call the COVID project. And the interesting thing is that there are two dates, the start date and the finish date for the COVID project. The start date, not controversial, March 2020. Finish date, March 2025. That's, that's, that's what we're doing. That makes you yeah, blood cold. It does. But, you know, you're aware and I've heard you talk about the, the Great Reset. And, and I mean, that's fundamentally what this is about. I mean, you talk there about, again, the ideological cast of this whole thing. You know, the green thing, you mentioned the green thing. That's a big factor in there because there's a very strong relationship at some deep level between climate, the climate change agenda and the COVID agenda. That what we noticed here. They're one of the same. I mean, within week, within a couple of weeks of uh, the the lockdown in 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 March, April, April it really dug in. Uh, they started putting down cycle lanes outside our yes, house. Yes, like, we had the same. We had the same. They're moving you know, in lockdown. Yeah, like, and this was all obviously planned for a very long time. You don't come up with stuff like that in the, and get the finance together and get all the materials and the work. You don't do that in, the, in a weekend, you know, but it was ready to go. And, and so this is all about changing the world, really. And, and, and what it actually means, James, is that our democracies have been bypassed, that, that, they've relied, that they've, the people who actually run our countries have come to the decision, or somebody is telling them that this decision has been made, that, you know, this democracy business it really hasn't worked very well. You know, it's very slow and cumbersome. And, you know, we have to ask people what they think. And the people don't know anything very much, really. You know, and they'd be talking. They want to debate about it, you know, and discuss things. And uh, we can't be having that. So let's just lock them up and we'll just do what we want. Yeah. And that's I don't, nothing. I, no, I don't. I, I don't. I, I don't think you and I play the uh, the victim gate card at all because we don't give a shit. But but have you have you had a lot of grief for for for, for sticking out like a sore thumb in in Ireland? Oh yeah, yeah. It's funny actually. It's funny, James. I mean, because the the grief I've got talking about cyclists is the cyclists. It's the men in lycra that hate me more than anybody yeah. uh, for some reason, and I, I can't really identify what it is. I mean, if I'm walking along the street. Since we took our court case, right, and we got a lot of yeah. uh, stick from the, the journalists, of course, that's kind of part of what I mean. But, you know, for about nearly six months afterwards, when I was walking around this, the place here, like every third cyclist would like let, let rip with a, a payload of expletives in my direction. Yeah, but you, know? you couldn't hear them because they're wearing masks, I imagine. That's good to well, I'm kind of half deaf. I lost the hearing in this ear, in my left ear. But so that's a great benefit, actually, to me, when I, if I can turn that particular ear to them. But they may, like I've often said to people, if I'm walking on the street 
And I see a guy coming in, you know, those blue overalls like mechanics wear, you know, and he's got a wrench sticking out of his pocket or, you know, and, and he's, he's kind of face is covered in grease. I, I'm 100% certain he's not going to say anything to me, yeah. anything unpleasant or, or nasty. But if I see a guy on a bicycle in yellow lycra, I know I better duck, you know. And it's quite astonishing. It's, again, that kind of ideological stripe thing, you know, that it somehow has found all of its kind of adherence uh, by some osmotic process that we don't really understand. And it's something to do with this whole entrancement business, you know, which is really fascinating. I, I, I think it's terrifying, really, James. We've all talked a lot about a, a propaganda and, and we kind of used to think it was all about posters or gobels or something like that. And it was all terrible stuff. But we had no idea that actually it essentially is a way of stealing the mind of entire populations. Yeah. You could actually, you can get 98% of a population and make them believe something and they will become fervent adherents of that belief. Yeah. yeah. It's terrifying. We should be terrified by it. It's, it's very interesting what you say about the kinds of people who give you grief and the kinds of people who you know are on side. And this has been very much my experience when I've gone to rallies or when I've just bumped into people in the streets, or I, I, I did something the other day, I went to, we had, a, we had an attempt at a great reopening, which is a bit of a damp squib because the weather was terrible and, and it just, you know, but I, I, I think it's, a, future events might be more successful, I don't know. But definitely the people I, I, I met on these things who are on site, they're kind of like ordinary people, just people who haven't had their minds corrupted by university people who do stuff people who make stuff and mm. I, I I've started to feel I mean I, I'm not an actual tough but I but but I do feel a bit like one of those aristocratic generals uh, that commanded uh, parliamentary regiments under 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 Cromwell that 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 I've I found myself to be a kind of a man of the people and I like being a man of the people because the people seem to have decency and common sense and love of their country and understanding of their country's values in a way that this kind of university educated elite just doesn't. Yeah. It's shaming. I, I think you're, it is absolutely, you're dead right there. I, 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 I firmly believe that. And I firmly believe that's be kind of behind the Trump phenomenon yes. and was behind the Brexit phenomenon and, and, and the Jilly Jones and all that, where, the Greeks used to call these the able men, you know, that they were people who worked with muscles. Victor, has, Victor Davis Hanson talks about them as well. He calls them the muscular, the muscular part of society. And uh, there's a brilliant uh, guy called Matthew Crawford. Uh, maybe you've heard of him, but he's a philosopher and he's a motorcycle mechanic. He's oh, written yeah. a couple of great books about this, about the connection between thinking and working with your hands that there's a profound connection, that the quality of the thought is better if you're governed by your spirit level than if you're actually just floating in, sp in space with nothing to hold on to, which is where a lot of the thinking that you would get on Twitter comes from. Like it's literally floating in space and it's all disconnected and there's no foundations to it other than that somebody else said it or somebody else thinks it. And I think that sounds like a good idea and it fits with this other idea I have, you know? And I think what you're actually seeing now is this divide in society. There's not anymore. The divide is not left, right. It's literally between these, the able men and women who build, who make and mend the societies, who build America, who 
build Britain and clean Britain and and and, and polish Britain every day, you know, and paint mm. it. And and then on the other hand, you have these people who are all the time in the in, at the screen, like ourselves in a way. I mean, we're right in the middle there because we're on the, the you know, tippy tappy, you know. And it's kind of like that that what's actually going on is a war for supremacy, which is essentially based on envy. Because the tippy toppy boys look at the able men and the able women and they're envious because that's real work and it's real engagement with reality. And they would love to be doing that, but they're not. Yes, what, so they, they sort of slightly despise themselves for being this, yeah. they're, they're yeah. what Coleridge called the clerisy, this, this class of sort of, yeah. And they kind of do feel, no matter how much they assert, in fact, the more they assert it, they actually do feel quite parasitical on the work of the able classes, you know, and they wish that the able classes would just disappear. So that wouldn't happen. Of course, what will happen if the able classes disappear is that they will all starve to death. You know, that's they don't well, realize about this, at the know? shrug now, aren't you? We, we, we should all move beyond the mountains to this. Uh, yeah, well, actually, I think that's what we're going to do, James. Once this thing gets really going in a year or two, if the way if it keeps going the way it's going, I think that's going to happen. I think we're all going to have to actually go back to basics and you know reenact the Swiss Family Robinson out there in the in the in the sticks somewhere and build ourselves a log cabin and you know learn how to light a fire without matches and and basically start civilization again from the very beginning. I'm certainly feeling at the moment, and I'm trying to. You see. I think a lot of people have got this experience. Families have been divided between, for example, on the issue of vaccines. I do not want my children to get vaccine. I really, really don't. And yet there are other elements of my family which are going, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's, 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 uh, people are divided on this. And there are also still lots of people who cleave to the old world, who imagine that, that you know, we're, we're going to get over this. They don't. They don't know, for example, about the, that World Bank thing you mentioned about, you know, end date 2025. They think it's all going to be, think, they think this is all normal. It's all going to pass soon. And I don't think it is. I think it's going to get, get worse. But I also think, you know, one of the, despite what's happened with Trump, despite the failure of the American system, one of the blessings that America has is it does have the, 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 the federal system. You know, it's, it's got... It's got these states which can act as a kind of um, outlier, um, a, a sort of resistance to whatever whatever the, the DC government is imposing on them. And you're seeing this now in Florida, very much under Governor DeSantis. Um, he's being very robust on coronavirus. He's saying, we're going to open all the, well, of course, Christy Noem's doing the same thing. But, but the, the climate is not so good in South Dakota, I, I'm thinking. Um, although they've got horses, haven't they? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, see, you see, I'm thinking aloud here. I'm thinking about where, where I might move to sit this one out. Yeah. Because I'm looking at my own country and I'm looking at the politicians and I'm seeing nobody apart from Charles Walker MP resisting this shit. And I'm seeing yes. the opposition is under Keir Starmer, who's a member of the Trilateral Commission and, and therefore... Is, is Great Reset Central. He's, he's already talking about a new kind of economy. So, so the opposition is not offering any opposition to this. Boris Johnson is a, is a husk. Um, the worst people in his, in his cabinet are, are, are dominant, people like Matt Hancock and um, Grant Shapps. 
I'm looking across at America and I'm thinking, okay, it's complete shitsville with 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 um, the fake president Biden at the moment. But if you get these little pockets of resistance, like like Florida and Texas, maybe these are the places to go to to begin the fight back because you've got. I think to fight, you need a secure base, don't you? It's a bit like during the during the Second World War, Britain stood alone and it could, it could do so because it was an island against what was going on in, on in the continent. In, in the same way, I think if you haven't, Britain is not a secure base anymore. It's, it's been overrun by the enemy. I think you need to be a place where there are people well, like you who are fighting back. And yeah. yeah, but I mean, there's, there's clearly an imaginative deficit on the part of anybody who looks at Hancock and listens to what he's coming out with and thinks it can never go back what it was like before that he's yeah. going to stop behaving like this this unless he's put in jail i don't see him stopping right and 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 that seems to me to be obvious and the same applies here and that's what we're i mean i would be thinking of that as well but I, i'm not sure how does one go about it does one like seek asylum in america somewhere in texas or i just say in florida i mean that's a possibility i haven't looked into uh, residency but, but yeah it's um yeah yeah, like, so I think that because our options are, are kind of, you know, running out here and because in Europe, I mean, uh, we go to Spain, can't go there now. It's not safe. Uh, you know, uh, what, no place why, is why, why Spain? What's wrong with Spain? Well, it's just, I mean, it's completely crazy leftist uh, yeah. stuff and they could come down with a complete martial law at any moment. You just don't know. They it's could. even in the darkest parts of Andalusia, like where, you know, it's quiet and, and there's still kind of tyrannies. People, police officers going around enforcing mass laws and all the rest of it. Uh, like, and, and I, I just find that uh, people are unrealistic about all this, that, that we, we really are in a completely, in, in completely uncharted waters now. And, uh, but we have, this is the point. We don't have any commentary on that really above ground because the media is corrupted. And that's the strange thing. I mean, in a certain sense, it's not, it's unrealistic to expect people to wake up when they're surrounded all the time by a singular viewpoint, the same thing, morning, noon, and night, it becomes reality, James. I mean, you know, that's, that's what news is. News is reality, especially when you've had 150 or three, 270 years of tradition behind a newspaper, and today it's telling you that there are, you know, 750 cases of COVID yeah. in a hospital, in whatever. I was thinking about this last night, John. I, I, I was gonna, I, I wanted to tell you this story. Um, is that just an example of the craziness that has been normalized in our culture. Um, and uh, the other day I had to do some filming for a documentary, a TV documentary. And uh, I said, listen, I, I really can't be asked to go to, up to London. I don't wanna go through the rigmarole of, of a train journey where I'm not wearing a mask and I could be risk, you know, con confronted by other passengers like happened once and you know, they saying, you should wear a mask. And I, you know, fuck off. I just want to sit on the train and just go to my destination. So all that. Yeah. And, and London, there was no point in London now, but with all the shops closed, why would you go to London anyway? It's, oh, just it's, it's horrible. I'm sure. I'm sure. So, so they came round to my house and, but before they came round, before the cameraman, just a single cameraman, uh, I had to go through this and can you make sure uh, how how many rooms will he have to pass through in order to get to the room where they're going to film and I, I was thinking I don't fucking know I mean he's going to decide when he arrives what room is going to film in and then there was and how many 
how many bathrooms do you have in your house? And I was counting the bathrooms. Oh, you mean toilets? Uh, yeah, we've got, you know, however many. And then and an hour before he arrives, can you open the window in the room that he, um, you're going to film in? And my wife was like, fuck off. Uh, it's freezing outside. We're not going to do that. And they said, and when he arrives, can you, you don't have to wear it all the time, but can you be wearing a mask? And I'm thinking, hang on a second. This is akin to saying, um, before the cameraman comes, you've got to wear a special unicorn hat with a spike on it. And can you make sure there is tinsel sprinkled on the unicorn hat? And please, can you make sure that it is a rainbow unicorn horn? And when the cameraman arrives, can you do a sort of unicorn dance? It, it, is, it is similarly bullshit as that. Yeah. And yet we all have to pretend yeah, like these, these, these face coverings, as they're called, they're not even surgical masks. These face coverings make any difference when all the evidence suggests that they don't. It reminds me of, of when we were in court. I mean, all the courtrooms that we've been in for the last year, yeah. uh, have all, all the seats have these placards, COVID placards, plastic yeah. placards stuck to them. You know, so you can't sit on those ones. Yeah. And there's only about like three seats in the entire courtroom that, you can actually, that somebody can actually sit on. And, you know, if you're actually with somebody, you have to sit, you know, six feet apart. Even you're, you're supposed to maybe exchange information if you're in a McKenzie friend or something. But I said to the judge, you know, we're here to try to make the case that this whole thing is completely bogus, right? And here we are, we walk into the courtroom and we're confronted by these posters which say the direct opposite, right? So how do we know, how are we to believe that the situation is not already prejudged, as it were? Yes, good point. I mean, it's like, it's like if I, if I came into the court accused of murder and everywhere I looked, there was a poster saying wanted for murder, John Waters, you know? Yeah. Like, like what's the difference? You know, it's complete bonkers. But you see, this is the thing, gents. I mean, like this, we can't really get to the depths of this because language in whatever way we use it, I think journalistic language can't get to this actually uh, because we're trying to describe a reality that is actually not there it's not a, it's not constructed for people to look at yeah. so therefore what they're seeing is something completely different right so when you describe something it's actually you know you're actually banging off it it doesn't it, it just doesn't there's no traction and and i think that that's one of the problems that we're dealing with now that it's going to take years to formulate a language and you're going to need novels and you're going to need you know uh, plays and of course, where are you going to do plays on Zoom? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I, that's what I think. Has anybody yet done the first Zoom play, James? You know, I think there's money in that. For oh sure. no, I think it's could... it has been happening because I think the spectators, I... drama critics, have still been in business every week. So, so that that's that's an area where you'd have thought the artists, like you said about the the rock stars you'd have thought the artists would rebel, that their imagination would enable them to see what's going on and find a way of, a bit like artists thrive under, under oppression, don't they? You think of all the, yeah. the uh, uh, but, but no, but no, the, the, the artists have, have completely wet the bed and, and fled the field and, yeah. and, and they kind of deserve it, I think. Yeah, they do. They do. You see, I'm kind of astonished. I mean, in Ireland, it's kind of, you know, okay, I can see why there's nobody, right? It's just us and we're like crazy, right? Uh, uh, but uh, if you look at somebody like Lord Assumption, like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm out there, you know, you know, the way I look and the way I, you know, the way I've always, you know, like, yeah, you're a like complete, was, I, complete yeah. Mean, but yeah. if you look at somebody like Lord Assumption and the way he speaks so reasonably, 
and intelligently and eloquently. And the way he describes things in terms of risk, you know, that we have a right to take a risk with our own lives in order to live. Yeah. And that's such a beautiful and fundamental idea that it's the kind of thing that philosophers, artists, poets should immediately say yes to, right? But where are the philosophers, poets and artists? They're nowhere to be seen. I think you're, you're talking to him and I'm talking to you. And that's about bloody yeah. it. Now, that's, I, it. that's it. Right. Um, now, John. And I wonder, Jim, I, I, I do have this question. You know, I, I mean, I'm all the time struggling with this in my imagination to imagine where is this going to go? Are we going to have 70 years of tyranny? And at the end of it, somebody will dig up, you know, this video. They will. And they'll still talk, And they say, who are these guys? Who are these guys? God, they were there. There was people there who were saying no to this. Oh, my God, this is astonishing yeah. news. Oh, you know, I don't know. Or is some little article that we've written or something, is it going to survive? And people are going to say, wow, I didn't know that there was any resistance. Yeah. No, I listen. John, I've enjoyed this conversation more than, and I have really good conversations. It's been absolutely fantastic. And I feel like I've found, you know, I love you. It's been great. It's been so good. <laughs> Thank, I, you. I, Thank you. I, I highly recommend people sign up to your Substack. I think I might have to go on Substack as well. Um, yeah, it's uh, John, johnwaters.substack.com, but it's actually called John Waters Unchained. So if I ever kind of become a, a press baron, my newspaper will be called Unchained. If, because I think actually one of my theories about this is that everything's going to collapse. The internet is going to be taken down because it's a danger to mankind. And we're going to all go back to paper and newspapers. And we start off with pamphlets or Sammy's stats and we'll work our way back up again. And so mine's like going to be that. called Unchained. Good. Okay. Yeah, me too. Um, uh, I think that's a very good idea. Um, so support you on, on Unchained, on Substack. Um, Please, if you enjoy this interview as much as I've enjoyed it, um, don't forget to support me. You can support me on Patreon or Subscribestar and uh, enables me to do lots more stuff like this that you like. Remember that. I mean, we've, I think we've all got to do our bit. It's, 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 we can't play a passive role in this. If you want to help the resistance, you can start for one thing by, by financing these projects I do, because I, I shouldn't have to do it for, for free out of the goodness of my heart, even though I do have a good heart. Thank you, John. Will you come back on the on, on this on this vidcast one day? I absolutely loved it, James. I really loved the conversation. It's really nice, and it's it's so nice to meet somebody, even remotely, who is of the same mind. I mean, it's such a rare thing these days. I'd love to come over for a pint with you now, uh, with with a Guinness. I can't have more than one pint because it makes me fart horribly. I don't know. We why. would have to we would have to drink it by the seaside in the wind in the in the wind. We would, yeah, especially in the wind. Yes, <laughs> with the effects it has on me. Anyway, it's really good to see you. And let's have a drink, not in twenty twenty. Yeah, love earlier. I hope. Stay in touch. Thanks a lot. Good luck. Bye. See you soon.